Given what's happened over the last year and a half, you'd think the Health and Human Services Department would have something the Defense and Energy Departments and the Intelligence Community have, namely an Advanced Projects Research Agency. Now, the Biden administration has proposed just that, a $6.5 billion ARPA Health as part of the National Institutes of Health. To discuss more about how an ARPA Health might actually work, Tom Temin spoke with NIH Director Dr. Francis Collins, starting with the question, isn't the NIH itself a sort of ARPA already? Well, I appreciate your phrasing it that way because I do think of NIH as being bold and having done amazing things to advance the cause of medical research over many decades. But what ARPA would provide us would be with a new division that had some new authorities that allowed us in special circumstances to be able to move even more quickly and to take more risks. The way that DARPA has done uh, for defense over the course of decades and has had some pretty good successes, you know, like the internet and GPS and self-driving cars and things like that. There are instances where biomedical research has opportunities like that and our ability to go after them is somewhat impaired uh, by the way in which we traditionally have been doing research, which has been incredibly successful, but maybe doesn't work for everything. Because there have been some recent instances of this type of crash research, if you will, probably not the best word for it, but whatever happened to the Kidney X project, for example, that seemed really promising and kind of a rapid way of getting around a problem that had been unsolved for decades. Well, yeah, there have been instances, and I guess since I've been at NIH for 28 years, I've been part of some of them, beginning with the Human Genome Project, which was very much a radical departure from the usual way that biomedical research was conducted. Usually, an investigator would have a good idea. They would send us a grant. We would go through a rigorous peer review uh, that was followed up by a second level of review about program priorities. And if all went well, and that grant landed in the top 20%, and then it would get funded. But that was about a year later. It would not be possible with that mechanism, though, to pull together a big team and do something like the Human Genome Project. Who would apply for that? So that requires a different kind of thought process, a different kind of mechanism. The Genome Project was very successful in 13 years. Um, There are things now that we would like to do even faster than that, and we don't quite have a straightforward way to support them. You know, Tom, I'll go to what's happened in the last year and a half with COVID-19. We NIH sort of put in the position of needing to bring all of the most vigorous, rigorous science to bear on this worst pandemic in 103 years. And we did stuff as a result of that need that we've never done before, leading to vaccines being approved in 11 months, uh, leading to more than 20 therapeutic agents run through rigorous trials, uh, leading to diagnostic tests, uh, many different technologies that otherwise would not have made it out into the clinic. I learned from that that there are ways to do things more rapidly in a in the presence of a real pressing need. But we had to kind of make it up as we went along. Wouldn't it be better uh, to have a framework for those kinds of things? And not just for a pandemic, but for, you know, the next breakthrough in cancer or Alzheimer's or diabetes or a rare disease, everything from molecular problems to societal problems. There are projects like that that right now are hard to do. So why don't we make it easier? That's what ARPA-H aims to do. And when you mention new authorities, for example, could that extend to, say, going to clinical trials of experimental types of drugs where now sometimes that's the stage at which things get hung up for years? Well, there is this uh, traditional phrase called the valley of death, uh, which is uh, actually 
a pretty accurate description of what happens to a lot of promising clinical advances where you get to a certain point where you could see the potential, but it's not something the commercial sector is ready to invest in. It's too high risk or the market is too small. And so it just goes into the valley of death and dies and people therefore are not benefited by it. If we had an entity, and ARPA-H could be a really good one, uh, to pick up those that seem most promising and be willing to fail, because that's necessary. If you're going to get work done, you're going to have to accept the fact that it isn't always going to work. Uh, and then make that investment, bring it along with clinical trials to the point where it has been de-risked. And then if a commercial entity says, okay, I'm ready now, fine, hand it over. We never want to do anything at NIH that's basically taking over space that the private sector wants to use. But we sometimes need to help get things into their space so they can license them and run away with them and make the things happen that the public needs. But how would it interact, say, with the FDA space? Well, we will need to have close collaboration between ARPA-H, as it's currently proposed, and the FDA. And we already know how to do that. My gosh, uh, this year and even before this, interactions between NIH and FDA, to be sure there are no surprises, have been critical. Uh, I probably speak to Janet Woodcock, the acting uh, FDA commissioner, several times a week. Uh, and certainly with the vaccine efforts, uh, interacting with her staff, especially Peter Marks, has become a very important part of our business. Not that we try to influence their decisions, that would not be a good thing, but that we don't surprise each other with what's coming. And if you're gonna run, for instance, a risky clinical trial, before you start it, you probably wanna run the design past the FDA. And so you can find out that if the trial actually works, FDA is gonna say, okay, bingo, you got it. As opposed to, well, you didn't design your trial right, you better start over and then everybody loses. And getting back to the $6.5 billion proposal, I guess, for 2022 that is in the budget for NIH, how does that break down in terms of people and money for actual grants that would go out? So it's pretty bold, this $6.5 billion from a standing start, uh, and that would be what ARPA-H would need to do. We can't even begin to stand this up until the budget's actually approved and Tom, you know that budgets for the federal government often don't happen to emerge on October 1st, even though they're supposed to. We can hope. So probably uh, we might then see something happen by December. Fortunately, the president's budget proposed, and the Congress seems to agree with this, that that money doesn't all have to be spent that first year, that this could be stretched out over three years. What would we need to do? First of all, we need to hire a director who has the right characteristics to lead this effort. I'm thinking of somebody who has private sector experience, who's an entrepreneur, who has vision, who's bold, who's a really good communicator of that vision, who can then go out and recruit these program managers, maybe as many as 50 or 100 over the first year, who are really going to be the ones who figure out what is an appropriate ARPA-H project, how do we design it, how do I pitch that to the director if he approves it, how do we get it started, how does it have milestones so that you know if it's succeeding or failing, all of those things are going to need to get going like on day one. So given all of that, by the end of fiscal year 22, I would expect we would have 50 or 60 projects going, but probably not a lot of results. <laughs> those results hopefully would come a year or two after that as the project really ramps up, scales up, staffs up, 
and gets a lot of things done. But this is not the traditional grant mechanism where somebody sends in an application. The program managers figure out what they think the opportunities are, and they can go out and recruit partners, including, you know, small businesses who might never consider sending a grant to NIH, but who might be just the right partner to get something to happen. Because we've had language over the years, there have been moonshots and so forth, where people expect, well, we just throw enough money at it. There was a cancer moonshot, and I don't know whatever happened to that. I think it maybe plunged back to the ocean or something. But these would be more focused oh, no, than no. that? I, I will resist that description. <laughs> we are pushing that pretty hard, but not in the same way as ARPA-H might now be able to do in contributing to that. And do you have any sense of the areas, and not to signal where you spend money, but areas that are ripe for an ARPA type H? I think Alzheimer's comes up a lot in these conversations. Anything else? Certainly the president in his vision about this is thinking particularly about cancer, uh, given the tragic death of his son uh, to a brain tumor. But it's also clear that this is intended not to have a menu of specific diseases which will get a certain number of projects. This is going to be dependent on scientific opportunity. I'll be amazed uh, with the budget that's being proposed, which will support hundreds of projects, if there won't be quite a few on cancer and quite a few on Alzheimer's and diabetes. But there will be some on diseases that are quite rare, where there happens to be a particularly golden opportunity to push things forward and move across that valley of death. I think there'll be a lot of technology development efforts. I'll give you an example that I'm fond of. Hypertension. Here's a condition that's incredibly common in our society and also a cause of health disparities. We know we don't manage hypertension very well. People who have that show up in the office of a physician now and then. There's white coats all around. The blood pressure measurements are of questionable validity. Medicines get given. Maybe they're taken. Maybe they aren't. We don't really manage this the way we ought to for a chronic disease. It's a major cause of heart attacks and strokes. If we really had reliable ambulatory 24-7 measures of blood pressure, it would totally transform the way in which we diagnose and treat this condition. And there's no reason with the way technology is now advancing that we can't get those kinds of wearable sensors optimized. There are some options out there, but they're not quite there yet. I think this is a place where ARPA-H could basically serve as a kind of a venture capital organization, say, we've got money. Uh, If you've got a great idea about how to do this, come forward. We'll offer you um, a lot of advice, business, technology, engineering, you know, supply chain, manufacturing, all that, and see what you got. And if it looks really good, we'll help you scale it up. Uh, We'll help it get into the market. And in the course of a couple of years, we might actually have a really good outcome, which otherwise may take a lot longer. That's just an example. And a final question with respect to the NIH institutes as they are now. There could be a little bit of uh, internal jealousy there if, if the great stuff is going to ARPA Health. And what about our institute, which specializes in infectious diseases, cancer, blood, heart, you name it. So there's a little turf issue. Well, that's here. one reason why ARPA-H really should be located at NIH and not off in some other part of the government where I think that kind of uh, unfriendly competitiveness uh, might might happen. So Basically, though, I think the institutes are pretty excited about this. It extends their reach. All of those institute directors have projects they would like to see happen within their portfolio, but they don't really have the mechanism to do so. And so they think of ARPA-H not as detracting from their capabilities, 
but augmenting it. And they've already come forward, many of them, with great ideas about projects that ARPA-H could undertake. And I think they will be cheering for this. They want to be sure, and I get this, uh, that this is not something where the budget for ARPA-H is taken out of their budget. This needs to be an addition, not a substitution. And the Congress totally gets that. And when you saw what the House Labor Health and Human Services appropriators did, uh, they both recommended support for ARPA-H, but also recommended an unusually large increase for the rest of NIH, making it clear that both are valuable and they should be seen as competitive. Dr. Francis Collins is director of the National Institutes of Health. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive, and you can hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy. with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm. I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style, and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, It's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? 
I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from 
talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing, if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally and, agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. As a parent, no two days are ever the same. And let's face it, sometimes a little extra help goes a really long way. That's what's so great about Care.com. They make it easier than ever to find local, experienced, and background-checked childcare to help manage your family's ever-changing needs and schedule. From nannies and babysitters to daycare centers and tutors, find help for long- or short-term support. Whether you need an after-school sitter or help with the homework, there's a large selection to choose from. And all caregivers who use Care.com are required to complete a background check before they're able to interact with families on the platform. It's so easy. Just go to Care.com and post a job for caregivers to apply. You can search for qualified candidates, read reviews and ratings, check their availability, and send messages directly. You can even find other kinds of care, including housekeepers, dog walkers, and caregivers for seniors. Find care for all you love. Sign up now and see why over 3 million families use Care.com. Visit Care.com today. Everything's getting more expensive these days. Gas, rent, and even your music. While other music services keep jacking up their prices, Live One is letting you lock in the best music membership at the best price. Live One Plus is just $3.99 per month. Get all your favorite music ad-free, along with unlimited skips and maximum audio quality. Beat inflation with the best deal in music at just $3.99 per month. Visit liveone.com slash best music to get Live One Plus now.